trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis, and it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Access to Excellence. We're thrilled to be joined today by Mason's Charles L. Chavis, who is an assistant professor of conflict analysis and resolution in history and director of the John Mitchell Jr. Program for History, Justice, and Race at the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. Prior to joining the Carter School, Charles served as the museum coordinator for the Lily Carroll Jackson Civil Rights Museum in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Chavis is an historian whose work focuses on the history of racial violence and civil rights activism, black and Jewish relations in the American South, and the ways in which the historical understandings of racial violence and civil rights activism can inform current and future efforts at peace and reconciliation. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, let's get right into it, shall we? Um, I understand that you're the first true historian on staff at the Carter School. Why is it so important to have staff who are also historically aware? I think it's just so important for us to understand the utility that we can find in history. Something that I always tell my students is that studying history for history's sake is not enough, right? Especially when there's so much to learn from the past, specifically as it relates to the work that leaders and social justice activists did years before, specifically pertaining to some of the same situations and problems that we're currently struggling to deal with today. And so for me, I really look to the past and I look to history. I look to those figures throughout history who were striving towards freedom the same way that we are today. And I just think it's so important for us to learn from them as we continue on our journey towards peace and freedom. Those are great points. The one thing I've noticed you've long stressed, Charles, is the importance of always telling the human story. What exactly does that mean, and how does that transform the story you're telling to something tangible and real, which normal people can relate to? The theme of this human story is something that has really guided my research as a historian and also as a practitioner. And it stems from my experience studying the transatlantic slave trade. That's really a nod and a reference to the debate that took place between Joseph E. Corey and Philip Curtin. And those who are familiar with the transatlantic slave trade research, there was debate surrounding you know, the numbers of the enslaved. And so you had a debate that was brewing between Inikori and Curtin for years concerning how many enslaved were actually transported from Africa throughout the globe. Missing in this debate I believe is the human story. And this is something that we see in history where we have a hyper emphasis that's placed on numbers, right? Statistics, data, right? Abstractions, if you will. And with the hyper emphasis placed on those abstractions, we lose sight of the human story, the individual story, the lived experiences that not only enslaved people face and traversed, but also the human story associated with the perpetuators of the system of enslavement. And so I use that as a primary focus, the system of enslavement. But throughout my research, whether it's lynching, racial terror lynching, um, whether it's the study of social movements, um, I think it's important for us to not only look at the statistical impact of movements and history, but also the human side, the human story, the individual lived experiences, the journey, if you will, is so essential. And so that's kind of like the origins of you know my practice of the whole concept of understanding the human story. 
can you give us an example of just like one time where you converted that from the abstract, the numbers, and made it real? And how much of an immediate difference did you see? Well, yeah. So for me, in terms of my main manuscript project that I'm working on now, it's actually going to be published with John Hopkins University Press. It's entitled Maryland, My Maryland, The Lynching of Matthew Williams and the Politics of Racism in the Free State. And it focuses on one of the last racial terror lynchings in Maryland, the lynching of Matthew Williams. And I've noticed um, in terms of the larger scholarship and the larger field, of lynching scholarship that there's a hyperemphasis again placed on these numbers right and so within that hyperemphasis you see that there's a hyper focus on states that registered large numbers of lynchings like mississippi arkansas with that you have states like maryland virginia and others who have smaller numbers of racial terror lynchings they're overlooked in a lot of the research and so I took this approach to focus specifically on one specific lynching and not in a state that, like I mentioned, has large amount of lynching cases, but in a state that's not known for its lynchings, right? So Maryland has documented at least 43 cases of racial terror lynching, and Virginia has at least 100 cases of racial terror lynching. And so I decided to focus my specific research on this one specific state, but also this one specific case, right? And dive into the records and sound the humanity of the specific individual, right? And so instead of seeing this person as a number, we now see this person as a human being. And we learn more about the community's role in the racial terror lynching, but also the role of activists and leaders who responded to specific incidents. And I think having this human story approach really is remarkable and it sheds light on the human experience, right? And it not only salvages the humanity of the victims of racial terror lynchings, but it sheds light on how we can learn as a community how to promote justice and racial equality. Now, Charles, you've also extensively studied the early civil rights movement, but what role does that play in everything that we're seeing taking place in America's streets today? Yeah, so one of the things I oftentimes tell my students, but also those in which I'm working with now in terms of this current phase of the freedom struggle, is that a lot of these movements started with students. And when we look at the bus boycotts, um, we look at the freedom rides, we look at the early civil rights movement to your question, and we know that it was students who led these movements, right? And so I think it's really important for us to understand in context that a lot of what we've seen and what we're proud of and what we honor in terms of our nation's history was led by students. And this is definitely true for the early civil rights movement. We oftentimes hear about the Greensboro Four in Greensboro, North Carolina, but it was actually Howard students in the 40s who began protesting against Jim Crowism and against segregation. Um, it's always been students at the forefront, and I'm so encouraged here at Mason that we have our students here who are leading by example and carrying on this mantle and the real true legacy of the civil rights movement in this country. You also talk about reconciliation. And of course, reconciliation has always meant facing the past and coming to terms with what's already taken place. How difficult is that to reach when a large segment of our population continues to feel aggrieved and believes there's little to no recourse? Yeah, that's a great question. Reconciliation, as you mentioned, is, is very tricky, specifically, I think, in terms of the American context, right? Oftentimes, we utilize this term and throw it around a lot. But it's important for us to understand when we look at specifically the American experiment, 
we have a fractured relationship between various populations, right? And so when we look at the whole foundation of our country, um, we have a system of a racial hierarchy, if you will, that um, was established from the onset, right? And so in order to have a true conversation about reconciliation in this country, I think we first have to acknowledge the failures in terms of our nation's structuring from the onset, right? And and how we've based our nation on a system that in some ways can oppress and does oppress specific marginalized groups. If we're going to have a serious conversation about reconciliation, we first have to understand how in this country, systemically, there has been a mistreatment and a devaluing of those in which are in the minority. You discussed the links between the lynchings that once almost freely took place in America and the police brutality that we see today. How are they similar? I get this question all the time. I think, um, you know, and people, I get a question, I get response from some scholars who are saying, why this is, this takes it too far. But you know, I think at its root, it's really about the lack of due process. And when you see what happens in terms of racial terror lynchings, we see that individuals who lynch, whether it's African-Americans or anyone for that matter, they become judge, jury, and executioner. The individual who is accused of a crime, oftentimes with no evidence, really it's just hearsay, they're literally, the individual or the mob becomes judge during executioner. I think this is what we see specifically as it relates to the rise in police brutality as it relates to people of color in this country. And it's also important for us to understand is that police brutality was present when lynching was also present, right? And so this has always been an issue. When you look at the origins and the foundations of the policing in this country, it has roots in what some historians note as slave patrols, right? And so Mm -hmm. we have to really look at how we understand the history of the police in this country. But I also think from a basic standpoint, from a legal standpoint, what we see in terms of similarities between lynching and police brutality is that we see a specific portion or group of our nation that are being oppressed and demonized and they are the subjects to individuals who take the law into their own hands becoming judge during execution or oftentimes with not having that basic right to due process and when we look at it from that from that perspective I think our eyes can hopefully open up and see that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. The lynching, of course, remains a very touchy subject that evokes strong anger from, still from African-Americans and a sense of almost tangible unease among whites who sometimes prefer not to face their past and how they may have profited as a result. How do you bridge that very real divide and solve those wounds by giving people a better understanding of what happened? I think it really begins with centering on the human story, right? And this is why um, this is so important to my research, but also in terms of my work as a practitioner and someone who really is promoting peace in our country. When we're able to salvage the humanity of these victims and lay out the full story, we're able to see the ways in which whites and blacks, for that matter, were impacted by these racial terror lynchings. And one of the things that I do in my book is I actually map out and highlight and chronicle and highlight and salvage the humanity and tell the story of those who were involved in the lynchings and those who were victims of the lynching. And so in doing that, I think if descendants and or relatives of those individuals 
are aware of their um, loved one's role and the impact that this has played not only in their life, but also in the lives of Black communities, then I feel that there will be a better understanding of this impact that I think people of color and marginalized communities definitely understand. But I think what we're witnessing in this current phase of, as I call it, the larger freedom struggle, we're witnessing more whites who are coming to the table and beginning to speak up and see that this is a problem. Like what happened to George Floyd is a problem. But, you know, my hope and prayer is that when the dust settles and the politics leave, at least a modicum of the politics leave, we'll still have that same unity and discuss about these acts of violence that communities of color and marginalized communities as well have been facing for years, right? Um, As I tell a lot of people in a lot of the talks that I've done, there's thousands of George Floyds, right? This case, his murder, just happened to happen in the midst of a pandemic. Is it realistic to believe that this kind of reconciliation can happen anytime soon? Yeah, I think I think it is realistic. And I think, um, you know, it's because of the current moment that we find ourselves in. I see this as a moment of reckoning and healing for our nation. Sometimes it takes situations like this to really cause us to deal with some of the um, errors of our past, right? And it causes every American citizen to be real about the ways in which we can contribute to promoting a better America. For example, with COVID-19, regardless of your race, wealth, your class status, it affects everyone, right? And those type of experiences, that type of shared humanity is something that, again, we're witnessing. And I think from what I've seen, it's really causing people to open up and to really better understand the plight that oppressed people have been dealing with. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen such a multiracial coalition, specifically as it relates to speaking out against police brutality and injustice, right? I think part of it is people recognizing that if one suffers, then we all suffer in the long run. Unfortunately, I feel it it takes um, situations like this for us to recognize that, which I feel it shouldn't, but I mean, historically, that seems to definitely be the case. As a historian, I look to various phases um, in terms of um, our journey in America. And, you know, this is very synonymous with what we witnessed during the Reconstruction era. And some would actually call what we're witnessing the third Reconstruction, with the second Reconstruction being the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And then this movement this third reconstruction being the reckoning that we're witnessing now in our country. What kind of role could monuments, museums, and memorials play in that healing process? Well, um, as a museum educator, I see that museums play a significant role, not so much as to speaking to the past, but speaking to the present. I mean, I can speak to my experience specifically as a museum educator at the Lily Carol Jackson Civil Rights Museum in Baltimore, Maryland. And as your listeners may know, um, Baltimore, Maryland was home to the Freddie Gray incident. And I was actually work, I was a doctoral student while I was working at the museum. And something that the museum is named after an anti-lynching advocate who is lesser known, but her name was actually Dr. Lily Carol Jackson. 
Um, and she was anti-lynching advocate. She was extremely close with Martin Luther King, Thurgood Marshall, and others. And she was a heroine of the early civil rights movement. And when you first walk into the museum, the first thing that you see is a replica of the NAACP flag that states a man was lynched yesterday. The thing that we had to wrestle with um, during this time, knowing that our museum, at least part of it, focused on the lynchings that took place in Maryland and also throughout this country, how do we speak to the current moment of what we're witnessing specifically with the case of Freddie Gray, right? So we took this opportunity to really connect with the youth, and we did an intergenerational oral history project in which we engage civil rights leaders from the past with youth around a lot of these issues and attempting to get them to understand what role they play in this current phase, but also helping them to understand the connections between what happened in the 1930s in terms of lynching and what we're witnessing today, specifically as it relates to understanding anti-Black violence and understanding their role as activists, right? And so looking back again at the foundations of the civil rights movement, knowing that for a large portion of it, it was student-led, right? Museums and memorials and monuments can teach us so much, but it has to deal with what type of risks they're going to take, right? But we also have to understand as well what communities the monuments, museums, and memorials are in, right? They have to be engaged, and the input of the community has to be involved. So much has been made about removing so many of the Confederate monuments. Do these monuments have a place anywhere, even if it's a place where we can learn in a museum? And can you tell us a little bit about the history of them? I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand when and where these monuments came from. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think it's, you know, this is really important for us to understand. And so when we look at the current monuments that we're seeing being taken down, it's important to understand the origins of these monuments. Most people think that these were erected post-Civil War, when in fact they were erected during the Civil Rights Movement. And they were used as a reminder for African-Americans who were seeking progress specifically in the the South concerning civil rights legislation and the like. And so a lot of these monuments have no official connections um, in terms of their um, development and their implementation to the actual civil war. And what's also interesting about it, a lot of the leaders who are venerated through these monuments and through these namings, some of them were not supportive of such monuments, right? but we have them nonetheless. And so in terms of what I think about the monuments, I do think that they, some of them should definitely have been taken down, right? When you have, I mean, when you look at what the system of slavery represented in this country, and you look at the ways in which certain figures were complicit in that, but also from just a constitutional standpoint, just from a patriotic standpoint, right? A lot of the individuals that you that we are venerating and honoring in the statues, they were traitors against their country, right? And in other countries, you would not see such type of monuments and oftentimes give the example of Nazi Germany, right? You know, people oftentimes say that's kind of harsh, but when you look at the ways in which the role of slavery and what it did to people of African descent, it was dehumanizing, but yet you have statues, schools, and the like that are named after these figures. And we have to understand what type of trauma this is doing to students of color who walk into a school that is named after someone who saw them as less than human. We have to, again, put on the human story piece, right, and look at this from the human perspective. 
um, looking at how this really impacts individuals. And also it's just not, how can I say, it's not good history, right? Because it doesn't tell the true story. And so in terms of these monuments, I think a lot of them should go in Confederate cemeteries and or be in, they should be in museums where you're able to give a full interpretation of the history and what this means. But to have these um, monuments in communities, specifically what I think is extremely problematic is having these monuments in communities of, and near communities of color, but also it's not good history in the fact that you have a lot of white allies and supporters of abolitionism, supporters of civil rights, you know, abolitionists and leaders of all stripes and colors who fought for equality and fought for a better America, but they're missing. We don't see monuments erected to honor them. We only see monuments that are erected to honor and dignify those who committed treason and those who wanted to perpetuate uh, this racial hierarchy. How do you eventually change the entire narrative, Charles, and how do you help steer the nation to a path of more positive social transformation? Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that what we're seeing and what we're witnessing is only a part of the story. And the whole concept behind salvaging the human story and bringing the complete history to fore in this country is going to be so essential. And, you know, that's really what we're saying. But if we continue to not understand that what these monuments are representing are a, a damage to our overall understanding of our country, right? Because it forces us to overlook the good people in history who really fought and died to support equality. And, you know, narrative changes is so essential. And we can't get to social transformation if we don't first understand the true story, right? The true history of our country. Um, And that's some of the work that we're trying to do at the Mitchell program and some of the projects that we're leading. They center around first narrative change, understanding that what we've been told is not the full story. And one of the projects that I, I don't mind mentioning is the Enslaved Narratives Project. And we received a grant from the 400 Years um, African-American Commission to salvage the lived experience and the stories of enslaved naturalists who contributed to a lot of what we see in terms of modern American ecology. And so we're looking at individuals like York, who was a guide to Lewis and Clark, who was an enslaved guide to Lewis and Clark, who a lot of people don't know about, but he was integral in um, supporting the work of Lewis and Clark in terms of surveying and other work, right? And we've he's missing from the larger narrative. You also have individuals who are more known for their work in terms of abolitionism, Harriet Tubman, who was also a naturalist. Once we open the door up to and really open our ears to this narrative, change into the stories of the marginalized, then we'll have a more complete and better understanding of who we are as a country. Because of that, we'll be able to make more informed decisions about um, this social transformation. Charles, you've obviously put a lot of time and effort in this. How satisfying has your work been to you, both personally and professionally? It's literally been a dream come true to be here at George Mason. And something that I'm really appreciative of is I am a trained historian, but I also am a practitioner as well. And oftentimes you have to make a decision and choose, right? Do you just want to be engaged in theory, research? You know, yes, I love it, but I also want to make sure that my work is meaningful in terms of promoting peace and promoting social justice. And so I feel like here at Mason, 
within the Carter School, I'm able to really do both. And as a university, I feel that we definitely honor both. I've just been completely inspired not only by the faculty and staff at Mason, but also the students. You know, they are so driven and are so passionate, not only about research, but also about really changing um, the community and changing the world and using what they've learned and what they're learning at Mason to really be better citizens and promote throughout our country and throughout the world. You know, I had talked before, and I know you and your team have a lot of things coming up in the next few weeks. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you've got coming up ahead and what exactly do you hope to accomplish? Sure. So um, one of the things that we really have been excited about during the midst of the pandemic, we were really trying to figure out what we can do to definitely keep the conversation going, specifically around understanding race and promoting social transformation and narrative change. And so we decided to launch a mini series that we were going to do. We said we're going to do it for a month. And it was called the Mondays in June series. And we partnered with a local restaurant and bookstore, Busboys and Poets in D.C., as well as with the Maryland Lynch Memorial Project. And so we hosted these series of events in June, and we were shocked to see how successful these events were. And so our first event ended up selling out. In three days, we had over a thousand people register for the event. Wow, that's great. Um, we featured anti-racist educator Tim Wise. The second week, we featured um, MSNBC contributor and Princeton University professor Eddie Glaude. We sold out again that week, and by the end of that month, we had over 15,000 views combined for each of our 45-minute sessions. And so we were actually approached by WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., and they've asked us to take the conversation live to the airways. And in September, we'll be starting, September 7th, that first Monday, we'll be starting a weekly show every Monday. It's from 6 to 7 p.m. It's called A Continuing Talk on Race. I'll be co-hosting this with Busboys and Poets CEO, Andy Shalal. And so oh, that's fantastic. We're excited about this. And it's just one of many things that, that our program is doing, but also that the Carter School is doing to really be a voice and in this current moment that we're all facing. That's fantastic, Charles. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here today, so that's going to wrap things up for us here at Access to Excellence. We want to thank Charles Chavis for his time and, of course, his valuable insights. We want to wish him well with everything he's got ahead. I'm John Hollis, and thank you all for joining us. Stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D C R I. S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.